Good evening. Tonight I'd like to talk about female Buddhas. As I look around the room, although it's a little bit dark, you can still see mostly female Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Dakinis, and Goddesses here. So I thought, although this is a subject usually overlooked by traditional Buddhist teachings, if not by most religious teachings, actually by most organizations <laughs> in this patriarchal world, still, there it is. Of course, Dharma, freedom, Buddha nature is beyond truth, whatever, is beyond gender. But in imaging it, since we often hear he or think Buddha is a he, or that monks are the first team, or whatever we might hear, you know, in the weak translations that go around, it's important to really look into the heart of the matter and recognize that these arm is beyond gender and gender bias, that the Buddha himself was the reformer who gave opportunity to women that women had never had before, to be educated, to be free of household chores, and to go forth in the enlightened life, just like men. And there are, in fact, female Buddhas. I don't know if you find them in your books, but you find them in my books and the books of other, our tradition. Female Buddhas like Tara, Kuan Yin, and so on. Many Bodhisattvas also, and Dakinis. So, what I'd like to talk about really is not history or mythology, but the sacred feminine energy, awakening the female Buddha, recognizing the sacred feminine energy in us all, contacting that side, the far side, as it were. <laughs> the sacred feminine energy personified in the Mahayana Sutras as Prajnapadamita, personification of Shunata, emptiness, personified as Tara, the mother Buddha, the protectress, excuse me, personified as compassionate Kuan Yin, Chinese form of Avalokiteshvara Chenrezig, great compassion, but each of these gods, goddesses, whatever, <coughs> archetypes, meditational deities, whatever you call them, reflect our own higher nature, our own sacred feminine energy. It's not something outside of ourselves. If you ask, are those deities real? One would have no choice but to say, they're as real as we are. So. Let's look into that. They're as real as we are. How real are we, after all? Our own self-concepts and so on. I exist. I'm a man. I'm an American. I'm a Buddhist. Whatever. I'm a teacher. You know, I'm good. I'm bad. I'm old. I'm young. How limited these concepts are. Excuse me. How limited and how limiting how conditioning our inherent freedom of being these concepts are. They condition us, they limit us. So when we look into the Dharma, we might often hear very male overtones. I don't know, I shouldn't really bring these up. You, maybe you haven't encountered these, so I don't want to inflict you with these ideas. But some sutras say you have to be reborn as a man to be a Buddha. <coughs> or there are prayers, may I be reborn as a man so I can practice the Dharma and become enlightened. <coughs> there are such traditional prayers. But I think those are very weak translations. And moreover, you know, as it is with history, we all, students of history know history is written by the victors. <laughs> 
So guess who wrote down all this Buddhist history and religious history except men, monks. But, you know, as you know, if you look deeply behind all those great monks, there were probably a great woman or something. <laughs> May I add something? Excuse me? May I add something? You can also say it, it is his story. Yes. History. Right, his story. Very, yeah, very good pun. So without getting into all kinds of gender-neutral language, which is very difficult, but to look more into the sacred feminine energy within each of us. So we're not just caught up in the achievement-oriented male-dominant striving of certain approaches to the past. Like it says, slay the kalashas on the slay the kalashas on the battlefield of the ego as if dharma is warfare of course that's an interesting image if you read the Bhagavad Gita it, it's a very interesting story showing how a spiritual life is like a battlefield and so on and sometimes it feels that way doesn't it but besides that on one side yes making great efforts trying to get there overcome our limitations, to transcend the poisonous passions, the conflicting emotions, the kalashas. That's all well and good. And to understand, you know, and so on, logic, Buddhist logic, so highly touted in some schools. But on the other hand, there is undeniably, excuse me, in, in the first, well, what I'm talking about in the first part is all in the realm of upaya, skillful means, method. Buddhism has a genius for upaya, for method, doesn't it? But method always has to be coupled with wisdom. And method is very male, very achievement oriented, very driving, striving. <clears throat> It has to be coupled with wisdom. That is personified or seen as female emptiness, like the womb of emptiness, the sacred feminine energy, not just driving forward towards enlightenment and understanding with the left side of our brain, but opening to the intuitive, holistic, receptive, sensitive right side, leaning back into being, not just doing, achieving, and striving, but leaning back into being, finding our true being, and taking our seat, our primordial seat. That's the sacred feminine, that's the great emptiness, Mother Prajnaparamita. So we all have that sacred feminine energy in us too, just like we have those two sides of the brain, the analytical and the intuitive. We are all have the yin energy and the yang energy, both. We're not just who we think we are, male or female. You know, I'm male, I can do this, so I should act like this and not like that. I'm female, I should act like this and not like this. So this merely self-concept. So the female, sacred female energy is very being-oriented, holistic, receptive, sensitive, nurturing, open, luminous, warm, nurturing, not just like pointed, laser-like clarity driving towards enlightenment. That's very male. But nurturing, warm, nurturing the positive, the seed of enlightenment, the bodhicitta, our innate purity of heart, nurturing that, not just slaying the negativities, so male, so martial, military, but nurturing the positive, bringing out the best in others and ourselves, fostering, engendering the best in others, warming up the whole environment, like gardening, making fruitful, 
gardening, fructifying our inner garden, our innate purity of heart. That's the sacred feminine energy of awakening. The formless, not just the form of enlightenment, the form of vows and precepts and steps to enlightenment and the path, you know. Auto route number one, get on it and go this way, one way. A little subtler than that, isn't it? Excuse me. So when we look into our own minds and hearts and our own practice, it might be very revealing to see how caught up we are usually in being a little unbalanced one way or the other. In one way, the male model, which I think Buddhism traditionally has fallen into, like all organized religions probably, of striving, of achievement, of control, of one man up in front telling everybody where it's at, <laughs> rather than council circle or whatever. There are other models of getting together, collaborating, sangha. Buddha is very male, Sangha is very female, family, community, collective. So there's a balance there that I think is very important not to be missed. If we look again into ourselves, you know, how to apply all this in our practice, where it counts, are we striving, fighting with the kalashas, trying to slay our poisonous passions, trying to control everything? What about opening to the other side of our brain, the intuitive, holistic, just being, nurturing the positive, flowering the bodhicitta, the innate purity of heart, the love and compassion and empathy, and so on. And engendering the best in others, fostering leadership values, not just creating followers, again, very male, dominant, creating followers, but what about fostering leadership? developing character, and so on. Of course, these aren't particularly female, but as compared to the model of the leader and the followers, <coughs> you see how it's more sangha-oriented, it's more soft, more formless character development, collaboration, and so on. Non-hierarchical, more egalitarian and democratic, but all of which, obviously, is very important for our time, I think. So, when we practice, it's important, I feel, to balance our methodology, our technique orientation, upaya, striving, effort, and achievement orientation, with the sacred feminine energy, the receptive, intuitive, the riches of being, not just the riches that we can accumulate through doing and getting and having. And really exploit the natural state a little bit more of being. Not just by expanding, but by enriching at the core. Again, more female, not really female, but feminine, sacred feminine values enriching at the core, not just expanding, expanding. Again, this male dominant model. Spreading Dharma everywhere, making everybody a Buddhist, like missionaries and even worse, empire builders. <coughs> but have it enriching at the core. You know, one real Buddha is worth millions of Buddhists, I'm sure, on the cosmic seesaw, if there was such a thing, which there isn't. So one moment of wholeness is worth a long time of just religion and ism. So let's balance in ourselves the sacred feminine with the masculine that we are all so familiar with. I think it's very important. And in Dzogchen, in the Tantra tradition, the female energy is much worked with and talked about for better or for worse, I might add. 
but that's another story. Not tonight. It's not just patriarchs and men and male Buddhas, but it includes, as I said, many female Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Dakinis. <coughs> what are Dakinis? They're like white witches or kind of female enlightened. How to explain Dakini principle? The principle, the movement of emptiness, like emptiness in motion or something like that. It's the sacred feminine. It says in the Tantra, we're all, all women are Dakinis, all men are Dakas, Bodhisattvas. So it's a way of seeing the light in everyone. Seeing the light in everyone, recognizing the light in everyone. In Buddhist history also, less known, but definitely there to be seen. There were many enlightened women, like the Buddha's aunt or wet nurse, whatever she was, Prajapati, the first nun, leader of 500 nuns, who became the first Arhat, and many other too numerous to name. In Tibet, um, Guru Rinpoche, who brought Tantric Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century, his main disciple was the queen, Yeshe Sogel, Ocean of Wisdom. She is like the source of Tibetan Buddhism after Guru Rinpoche, who brought it. Enlightened woman, who achieved what they call the rainbow light body, blah, blah, whatever she achieved. But she is the matriarch of Tibetan Buddhism, of Tantric Buddhism. And down through the centuries, Machik, Labdran, matriarch of the Chud lineage, and so on. And even today, there are quite a few female, I shouldn't say quite a few, but there are some female incarnate lamas and female teachers in the tantric tradition of Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. In fact, in the Dzogchen tradition, many teachers say, Kala Rinpoche, my own teacher, used to say, if a woman gives birth to the aspiration for enlightenment, the path is even quicker. And we asked why, and he explained, because there's less, I mean, this is gross generalization, of course, but there's, there's less of this rational or sort of striving ego, and more of the possibility, at least, of the nurturing, the kindness and love that is unselfish. Again, it's just a generalization, but it's to balance off many statements in religious teachings about the superiority of men. So in the Dzogchen tradition, we chant, we visualize ourselves women, we chant as, as female deities like Tara, Kuan Yin, we chant in mantras, we work with the female energy, we haven't really gotten into the chakras and energy here. But, you know, like this solar and lunar energy in our body, yin-yang. We work with the female energy. We work with consort practice. We work with all kinds of things. Like somebody asked last night about relationship. In the monastic path, relationship is usually to, said to be something to relinquish. But in the Mahayana and the tantric path, it can be considered part of the path and even worked with as a method of awakening. So, I think it's very helpful if we, again, apply this to our own way of being and delimit ourselves a little bit. Say, oh, I don't always have to act like macho man or fluffy woman <laughs> or whatever. You know, excuse the stereotypes, but you know what I mean. You know, we're allowed to have feelings too, you men. Liberate yourselves from this cold iceberg mentality. You know, and same for the women. So it's very interesting. Then we start to notice who we think we are and the limits of that. Because we're not what, exactly what we think we are. And things are not exactly what they seem to be. When we look into who am I and what am I, it could be very interesting. You see, we're just a kind of a concatenation, a whirling conjuries of different forces. No real solid abiding self there. 
we think we're male, we think we're female, whatever nationality, you know, whatever profession we identify with or whatever party we identify with. But a lot is so relative and relational and changeable. So we can get find a lot of freedom there, freedom from our concepts, from our self-imposed limitations. You know, men can also cultivate more nurturing qualities, and women can cultivate more, uh, whatever, mm, achieving qualities, leadership qualities, obviously, and so on. There's no reason we shouldn't, obviously, and especially today. It's called for, for us to be more balanced, and to include both in our way. So I feel personally that it's good to go beyond images, images of ourselves and also religious images and not be caught up in the somewhat limiting vocabulary or imagery that we've inherited in the Dharma path and in the various traditions of timeless wisdom but really recognize that each of us is whole and complete in ourselves. We don't really have to try to complete ourselves by finding our so-called soulmate or whatever, by always being in relationship. No, not just relationship with another person, but by always having to relate to get some feedback, always having to get some confirmation that we exist. That's fabrication, and it's exhausting. There's no end to that. We can experience our own innate completeness, <coughs> as the teachings reveal. There are actually practices, if we talk about male-female energy, for completing ourselves within our own energies, balancing the sun and the moon, and as in Taoism, we mentioned the other day, Ula, fire and water, and you know, we won't go into all that. But there are ways to practice and cultivate these things also in the various skillful methods of the path of awakening. Like devotion, for example, and surrender and loving kindness is very important as, a, as parts of the path for those of us who have an affinity for that, as is inquiry, meditation, and analysis, and investigation, you know, study, whatever, for those who have an affinity for those parts of the path. So we can have a well-rounded path and have a warm spiritual life and a genuine <coughs> spiritual life, not just a prescribed spiritual life, you know, as if it was prescribed in the book, the Eightfold Path, do like this, the five precepts you should never kill and so on all of those things are good but they can also be limiting they can you know they can deaden the aliveness of the spirit I mentioned killing purposefully because that's the most hard to understand how you know maybe it's not always the case but maybe it's not. Maybe sometimes the most compassionate thing is to pull the plug on the respirator or put down the pet who's in endless, hopeless misery or whatever. Think about it. So let's not be too square, too male. Shame on us men, if you will. So I say, female Buddha's awakened. Throw off your chains. So that's all I want to say tonight. Any questions? I've been hearing a lot of questions, and our week is coming to an end, so I want to bring out more questions and Dharma dialogue tonight. Yes? All men are dakas, all women are dakinis. That's the saying. It means that all are sort of embodiments of. 
the Buddha nature, let's say, in different forms. Dakini uh, in Tibetan literally means sky goer. It means like dancing in space, like emptiness manifesting or something like that, you know, form and emptiness. The dis- everything is a display of emptiness or of awareness. So it's not like you have to get rid of your body in order to get, realize nirvana. It's in Tantra, to invite that as a Dakini or Dakini or whatever. Yeah. What are they referring to? They're referring to those enlightened sort of energies. It's, it's uh, you know, what do you mean by invite, for example? Well, it says um, in the Doom of Fire practice, mm-hmm. to, to invite them to sexual intercourse with you. Right. So the tumor fire is the dakini. That's what I was thinking about when I was saying, you know, you learn with your energy that you can complete yourself without having uh, intercourse or relationship with somebody else. That you have a dakini within you, male or female, you're both. So the tumor fire is not just to save on your heating bill. (laughs) It's a practice of sort of inner incandescence. Yeah. Inner light, warmth, getting hot, you know, it's like getting more samadhi, which yeah. hopefully can be used to deepen your wisdom, not just to get off. <coughs> yeah, but they say also, you know, increase the, to increase the bliss, to increase the fire, mm-hmm. and to increase it even more, invite that as a bikini. Right. So, in one way, uh, invite means invoke or affirm the presence of. But in a very outer way, you could say that that's one of the rationalizations for yogis and yoginis having ta- practicing tantric sex on the physical level. That's the sort of outer manifestation of those um, things. But that's tricky business. I mean, it's easy to rationalize your using lust and desire and call it tantric sex and tantric sex is a very profound uh, practice you can make like um, generate satori or wisdom that way that's what it's about it's something that has to happen you can't provoke it right where did you hear about this tumo fire and what was it so you read that in a book? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, everything is in books today. But what to do with all those ideas? That's the question. Yeah. Something in your talk brought some ideas in me that um, I wanted to share. Mm-hmm. You talked about the balance of the yin and the yang and. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of something which has a similar feel, which is the difference between individuality and teams. If, if you take a bunch of five people and put them to solve a problem, the strength that they achieve by flocking together and seeing different aspects of it, mm-hmm. probably due to the mix of the is infinitely more, well, it's more than five times mm-hmm. more powerful than this single people. It seems to me that's something that we also miss. We talk to to try or to be beautiful or whatever, Mm -hmm. but as an individual, not the team. Right. So that's what we're talking about here with this kind of Mahayana notion of all being. It's like there's a suggestion of universal enlightenment or believing the suffering of all, not just one's own suffering. So that it's a little limited to just abstract yourself out of that and say there is suffering and I want to get rid of it but only look at one's own so we consider if there is suffering then it wants to all be liberated right and similarly we don't just think of I mean that's part of the mythology of the Bodhisattva the heroism of the Bodhisattva is supposedly it's said not to go to nirvana until all are similarly delivered so there's a kind of a team mentality there 
<laughs> and you know the sangha being an important focus also in dharma take refuge find refuge in not just the buddha enlightenment not just the dharma <coughs> the truth or teachings but also in the sangha the community of those who are traveling together there's a tremendous you know in one way independence of spirit we have to do the practice ourselves right Buddha said, I just point out the path to you. It's up to you if you want to walk it. And on the other hand, the recognition of interconnectedness. So we should be individuated, individual and grown up and responsible for ourselves. And also recognize our interdependence and interconnectedness. You just reminded me of the heresy which keeps coming into my head. Heresy? Mm -hmm. Uh But uh, I don't uh, find the the idea of nirvana very very easily to accept. It seems to me that what I hear is, well, you you practice and you you grow, and I can feel that happening. Mm -hmm. But this concept that there is some any that point, yeah. That I, I'm suddenly going to, or somebody is suddenly going to achieve, seems to me to be very hard to to accept. Right. I'm to accept infinite, unending improvement. Mm-hmm. But the concept of an instant, <coughs> I don't know if that's heresy or not, but it's come to me several times. There's no heresy in Buddhism. Oh, good. <laughs> Buddhism is, I mean, supposedly. Depends on your own uh, investigation, not on required beliefs or anything. And I don't know if you've really been listening. I've been more poking fun at Nirvana than espousing it. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, it's not what we think it is, you know, enlightenment and Nirvana. So don't worry about it. I think you're on the right track there. On the other hand, just to just to throw um, a little monkey wrench into <laughs> our discussion, it reminds me of the song of Zazen by the great Japanese Zen master um, Hakuin. It was Hakuin, yeah. He said, "This very land is the pure land, Nirvana. This very body, the body of Buddha, the Nirmanakaya." He wasn't talking about Japan. <laughs> This very land, <coughs> and this very body. So, what does that tell you? See, that's kind of the non-dual. That's the absolute view. Of course, the more gradual view is we develop step by step on, the, and it's an infinite path. And every step on the path is the way. Every step on the path is the great way. Don't worry about nirvana anyway, and certainly don't worry about heresies. People call me a heretic too when I question things like reincarnation or omniscient gurus and all that. Yes? I, I want to ask about uh, mantras and visualization. Is it helpful to visualize um, with a particular mantra? Like, for instance, uh, on Mani Padme, who that's the mantra of compassion. Is it helpful to be grounded by my mama? It could be if that's your practice. And similarly with uh, Tara, to visualize Tara? Yes, and if you get more elaborated into these practices, then it comes with a whole kit <laughs> <laughs> called a, sa- a sadhana, the tantra tool kit. Mantras, mudras, yantras, visualizations, tantras, you know, banners, bells, whistles, feathers, musical instruments, heresies, how far you want to take it. If you can't eat eggs and eat before you do the patara practice in the morning, you know, strictures, vows, it's a very well-developed tantric school. So if that's your practice, you know, if it's helpful, if that gets your attention and keeps your attention, then it's very useful. It's about attention, after all. And is, is the uh, the second one, the Vajra, 
the five of Guru Maharaj. Uh-huh. Is that Padma, Padma Sambhava? Right, the lotus born. Huh? Padma Sambhava, the lotus born guru who brought Buddhism to Tibet. Yeah, okay. So I'm thinking Guru Rinpoche. He's also called Guru Rinpoche. I'm thinking of a photo in uh, Sotho Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. Um, the one with the big eyes or whatever. Yeah, right. So now, now you know why his eyes are so big. <laughs> right? <laughs> Because he's practicing Dzogchen, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's the patriarch of the Dzogchen lineage. He brought Dzogchen teachings to Tibet. So again, when you know, if you chance, if you use this mantra as a tantric sadhana, then you visualize Patty, as we call him, the Irish Buddha, <laughs> Padmasambhava. <laughs> And you can also visualize the mantra like in your heart and light and you know, there's all kinds of developments that one can get into guided it's about it's a, a, a tantric sadhana is really a guided meditation. So it just depends whether you have elaborate guided meditation or very simple guided meditation. Yeah. Or no guided, just natural meditation. Or for that matter, daydreaming, whatever. Do you have some more questions about these mantras we're chanting or anything? But, uh, we're just, uh, I just wanted to check in whether mm-hmm. I'm actually just making it up because I have been visualizing and so I just found that helpful. Yeah, good. I'm just not teaching that because we're not doing that here. We're concentrating on the openness and awareness practice called Tregchud. Seeing through or cutting through or sky gazing. So we're here just for a few days trying to get down this practice, the main practice, and support it a little with the secondary practices of chanting, of breathing, and so on, just to keep it, us wakeful and present and see how it affects our energy and what it stirs up. But not going into the meaning of all the mantras and tantras and visualizations. But I don't know any of the theory of that, but I just wanted to make sure I wasn't completely making, you know, making it up and, and while, while I'm uh, talking to you, but I think it has a lot to do with self-acceptance. We can accept ourselves. We have a lot more patience for ourselves and therefore for others. Less demanding and, and irritable and impatient. I mean, more generally, you know, out of lovely state, when we slow down and we're more mindful and aware and attentive, we're not so impatient also. But I think it has a lot to do with acceptance and allowing rather than pushing and forcing and judging. And more femininity. Nurturing or being. More looking to the riches of being, not just what we're always trying to do, which seems to be getting impeded. Therefore, we become impatient. I don't think I really said exactly like that, but I'll, I'll just talk about this. In the sky gazing practice, we're not really dealing with outside and inside. We're just opening our awareness to whatever is. So we're not trying to close our eyes and concentrate and quiet our mind and go, in, quote, inside. And we're not really looking outside. It's just, we don't care about the sky, after all. We're not sky worshippers. We're just using it as a metaphor for natural awareness. 
You know, it's like, would you say you're listening outside or inside if you're just listening? Or feeling if you're sensing sensations, is it outside or inside? Well, there is a them from outside then you're less identified with them yeah. right, so that's the point mm-hmm. you have more perspective on it or you're less identified with it good so you found something so you mentioned sensations that's easy so what about if you get angry or bored or something? can you watch that from outside less <laughs> personally like from outside uh, or whatever problems you might have when you're falling asleep can you fall asleep and watch that from outside um, if I if I'm falling asleep in meditation my eyes you can it's very hard to keep them open and it's a sort of matchsticks. Actually, would you develop a better tool than matchsticks by now? Yeah. <laughs> and that's very technological. <laughs> yes, the best tool is interest. When you're really interested, you usually stay with things that you're interested in. You don't have to have to force yourself. Yeah, I have a question yeah. about um, contracting. Um, I've noticed particularly uh, when either I'm work, walking or working, how the attention kind of quite well. <coughs> I'm trying to keep the attention very global and open to everything. What actually happens is that the I concentrate on something and that contracts onto the object of concentration. Mm-hmm. So that I lose lose that sense of openness in in the concentration. Is that is that a necessary thing, or can I actually do something that requires a degree of concentration yeah. and actually contract it? Yeah, definitely. In the beginning, we have to experiment, you know, like kind of extreme <laughs> to see where the middle is. But where the middle is, it becomes clear as you get used to it that you can totally be doing what you're doing, even if it's the most minute thing, which you're calling an object. But it's also infinite, so you can be totally open and 100% open on that one point, you know. The finite is also infinitely, whatever, what do you want to say, gas, big, you know. So you don't have to be like spaced out all the time or sort of have, you know, your kind of your mind sort of turned inside out all the time yeah. and you can also do what you have to do like chop the vegetables and go to work or whatever it is and the problem isn't the concentration it's the contracting it's the contracting it's the, it's the view or the attitude around that yeah. big and small and you know yeah. openness means uh, <laughs> but it doesn't at all yeah. that's just the beginning introduction to like a different shift of perspective as she was talking about. But then you'd be doing 100% what you're doing. That's not going to be contracted, it's infinitely open. But that also apply then to, to my own thoughts, where, you know, yes. the tendency in myself to become kind of um, fascinated with and therefore to contract around the same thing flies there. Yeah, I'm just thinking, what's the real question in that? Can you be carried away from thoughts and still be free, open? 
To be carried away you suggest that you're somewhat uh, identified with it or sort of caught into that right. small channel. Right. Let me pose another question. Can you just do like mindfulness of breathing with the Dzogchen view of total openness? Yeah, I think so. Right. So you can do mindfulness of thoughts. You could do chanting a mantra. You can do cutting your vegetables or sharpening the pencil, like total one pointedness. That's also an infinite activity, you know, sharpening the pencil. Mm. You think gazing at the sky is, is, uh, is it bigger than sharpening a pencil? If you look into these things and we see you know, we're kind of fooling ourselves a little bit with our associations or concepts, open means big or something, or no object. Of course there's an object in this kind of practice. Like in sky gazing, maybe the object is awareness itself, aware of awareness, or the object is present awareness, or the object is the subject, who is aware. So it's not totally as it seems, no object, just we're used to thinking as an object like breath, or mantra, or the sensation, the can or the candle flame. Consciousness could be the object. We make the subject the object, like with the who question, turning back to the subject, and break down that dualism of subject, object, and interaction. That's karma, those three. I think the question was something uh, like, if your teacher, the Lama who wrote the book you had, um, the gentleman in the back seemed to be surprised that he was a scholar and studied <coughs> And his question was, uh, well, if I were enlightened after the end of this retreat or in a couple of days, um, would I have the same experience as the gentleman who wrote the book? And I was interested in your response, and I was wondering if you would elaborate. What I remember you saying was, yes, the experience would be the same, but that the difference was that it wouldn't be stable that was the word you used mm-hmm. for the person who has the experience mm-hmm. without the 25 years of background. Could you talk about that? Why is it that it leaves? And what do you mean by stable? That it's not just one enlightenment experience that is the end of the path, and that's just an experience, that um, it's like pickling a cucumber. One dunk in the vinegar doesn't make the cucumber into a pickle, but when it stays in long enough, then it becomes pickled, (laughs) and it never gets up, becomes a cucumber again. Unlike us with our sex worries, <laughs> cosmic orgasms, you know, LSD trips and so on. So it's not about the experience, but it's about stabilizing or, or getting used to how things are. With the experience you kind of realize or you glimpse how it is, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what system you're familiar with. In some it's called stream entry. You enter the stream of nirvana. But what happens? It goes away. Yeah, I would say you go away, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) You've kind of gone waiting, but you get out. You know, it's too cold or something. So, that's what we're talking about. What's the difference between stream entry and arhant or Buddhahood? It's stabilizing that experience. It's really fully immersion and dissolution in that. See, it doesn't really go away. You kind of recoil and retract and, and reform. So that's what we're talking about. 
Well, under that question mm -hmm. is, um, I'm very interested in the um, advisability of teaching meditation out of the context of, of ethics and truth mm -hmm. and the things that Nietzsche mm -hmm. talks about. Right. Um, because it almost seems like a waste of time. I mean, a waste of, of energy and practice. If you're meditating mm -hmm. uh, without being in this context that's mm -hmm. going to give it the stability. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Now it's the concept. It's the whole context, it's really. It's the truth and the practicing of that that is the stability, that provides mm -hmm. the stability yeah. right. that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, you know, it's hard to ride a unicycle, but it's e you know, you have to start with like a tricycle and then bicycle and, you know, just a unicycle is very difficult. And even to ride with no wheel, that's even harder. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this, the Eightfold Path and the Shiva Samadhi Prajna, you know, the three trainings and the six parameters, all that that I was going into last night. That's like all the wheels that are on, we should, so we keep our balance on the ground. Yeah, but of course it's good, you know, you can just teach meditation to like relax or lower your blood pressure also, it's no big deal. But, you know, it might not result in liberation very quickly, just taught like that. But to begin with, you know, it's probably okay, why not? But if you're teaching it to go past lowering your blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and you do not also teach the Dharma or the truth, um, then you're really leaving students uh, to a, pla a place that after they get there, they can't remain. Um, probably. What are you thinking about? You have some pet peeve you're thinking about? Somebody or some tradition or something? What are you thinking about? I know that's what I did, but I'm just yeah. um, really right, well, evaluating yeah. whether or not it's a good idea to, whether or not it's a service. Well, it's a good question, and it's always a good question to evaluate the quality of our service. To have, I mean, it seems like you must have both. Yeah. Are you teaching meditation or, you know, this kind of thing? I teach directly. I teach meditation, but I call it stress reduction. So that's good. But then people get very interested, and they want to go further. Yeah, so then, take them further. Do you know, of course, this is the whole field of discussion, you know, like, where do you teach it? You know, can you teach Dharma in that place? You know, religion or whatever it looks like or not. So, you know, you have to be sensible and keep your eyes open and attend to the the business at hand. But it's a very good avenue of entrance for many people and in, in the mainstream today, in the medical establishment, and, you know, it's very accepted. So, you know, there's not really nothing that keeps you from adding, sprinkling a little Dharma in here and there. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be seem like Buddhism or anything, any dogmas or, you know, coercion or anything. It's so interesting, the more the further you go, the more you practice, you just have to start talking about those things. And that's so exciting. Just be conscientious about what your motivation is and how you do it. You know. Like better than talking about those things is to exude and embody those things. And people might ask about or notice something that might click a little better. And just talking about them more you know, preaching them or whatever. But yes, very supportive. That's what I was saying last night, like ethics and self-discipline really supports concentration and contemplation, and vice versa. So it's, it's supposed to be a middle way, it's a balanced path. The Eightfold Path has a lot of different parts, you know. Like we talked about last night, important parts like humor, <coughs> exercise, 
and all the rest, you know, balance, effort, effort, and so on. Now, obviously, ethics is, is, is relevant, especially today, but it's hard to talk and preach about it. It's such a boring old subject for most people. They feel you just, you know, it's just more fire and brimstone from the pulpit. But if, if you exude impeccability, people start to wonder and to ask what, what's going on. That leads naturally to further discussions and even actions. Any other questions? Yes, Ula? You talked about the path of meditation and the path of the heart. Can you be on both paths at the same time, or is it a choice you have to make? There's only one path. <laughs> <laughs> but it ha- might have different lanes at times. <laughs> it's more like a sequence. Some, some say you can't be on both paths. You have to choose. You have well, to either follow the path of meditation or you have to follow the path. I don't. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't say there are those two paths, and um, there are many. You know, if you talk about paths or paths, whatever, there are many. <laughs> there can be said to be many, but they're all lanes of the, the great way. Like I hope we're taking the path of meditation here with heart. Okay. So we should have heart, not just a robotic brain behind it all. And, it just depends on how you look at it. But some paths emphasize a little more heart, devotion, you know, things like that, chanting, whatever, beauty, iconography, you know, and others less, but it just depends on which facet of the jewel is being Emphasize. It also probably depends on the on the person. Like Krishna Murti is a part right. of inquiry and then right. what his mind is all about. Yes. The love and is a part of the heart. So it's probably also right. part of the personality or the selection of the teacher. Exactly. The teacher and the student. Anything else? Please. Do you want to put it in the result? Um, it's supposed to include both, yes. <laughs> Which Buddhism do you refer to? But yes, there are many Buddhisms, and you know there are many mansions in that mansion of Buddhism. Some more calm and clear, like Krishnamurti's way, and some more devotional and trippy and colorful and magical and everything in between. But, you know, the essential teachings are there. Essential teachings are there. And, you know, you've heard me talk more weeks, so I'm just going to repeat again that we say the, it's a matter of balance or both wisdom and compassion. So head and heart, if you want to call it like that. Um, I uh, I'm still feeling my way. I, I got into this nothing to do with religion or Buddhism or anything. Just that there was a very strong pull to do something like meditate. And the more I <coughs> got involved, the more interested I become in, in the what you might call the, the Buddhist side of things. But I'm I'm finding it, and that's why I've done no reading on that. I just let it come naturally. But I'm very confused about all these paths, which seem to me to be <coughs> narrow paths, um, coming from one point, the, the right. Buddha, and, and now going roughly in the same direction, but overlapping and so on. And it's a very confusing image to someone who's... What I'm responding to is the teaching that, which for me is, is unique in, in, in a religion that I should experiment and analyse and choose, and only follow what I'm feeling my heart aside. But if I see different bits from two paths that I, I, I can uh, accept, it seems to me logical that I should follow those two and sort of yeah, merge into that train. That's okay. That's why I say they're like lanes of the same. 
They don't have to become rust that you can't get out of into mm-hmm. the next lane. Yeah. Let me turn the question another way. Do you have any choice but to follow what your heart or your intuition or your nose is attracted towards? How else would you do it? Well, I think most of our childhood would fall <coughs> into following these but some bits suit us and some bits put down. Uh, I think we can, at a penalty, we can, we can indeed follow them. Right, so let's try. Well, you don't have to create further ruts and navigate more freely. <coughs> there's not really so many different ways and paths. There's, there's only one great way. It just has a lot of different strands. You can say they all come from the Buddha, but you can also say they all converge in that enlightenment experience. Converge. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. You said it. Whenever you hear it doesn't matter, you might wonder why I'm saying that. Is it a rationalization? Because if it doesn't matter, why do I have to think it doesn't matter? <laughs> Amy? This concept of emptiness I find very interesting, but I'm not sure if I'm... I know, I see your face screw up when I say the Dakinis were the movements of emptiness. Yeah. I'm just translating from the Tibetan. <laughs> it's very profound and mysterious. Can you ask me a question? So I have something to respond to that relates to you. I would like to know what the movement of emptiness is. All forms including ourselves, our emptiness in action. Do you understand that? Form is emptiness, emptiness. We're going to chant that tomorrow. <laughs> then you'll understand. <laughs> form is emptiness, emptiness takes form. You know. mm. Or maybe in, in some other language, conditioned and unconditioned. Have you ever heard of the conditioned, all conditioned things, or realize the unconditioned in Theravadan Buddhism? I've heard about it. Right. So all conditions are conditions of what? Of the unconditioned. So it's like the movement of emptiness. It's like you realize the unconditioned nature of all conditions. Anyway, this is philosophy, you know. What it means is that freedom actually takes place whether you know it or not. Or women are dakinis, even if you don't see it. Or all our gods and goddesses are all Buddha light shining from everything, even if you don't. You know, you, our inner eye is obscured. It doesn't mean that the light isn't there. Yeah, anything can be. But usually it's associated with something female. A flower is female or male. Mm-hmm. What? Made of course. Whichever, yeah. Uh, I, I think so. One of the problems I had was that emptiness has a slightly negative sound. It's a contrast with fullness, overflowing. And emptiness is. My first reaction was when I heard that was not a positive right. reaction. Well, that's why I usually translate it as openness. Because <coughs> the word is shunyata originally. It means or it means like openness or it's not fixed the empty is fixation it's not fixed everything's open it's not what we think it is you know it's like is it a wave or a particle it's empty of particleness it's not like there like a particle so that's what emptiness means, but it's like a, a shimmering void, it's a luminous void, it's a 
indescribable, but it's highly positive actually. Full it's freedom, it's full empty, overflowing emptiness. Mm-hmm. Womb of emptiness, the fertile womb of emptiness it's called. So of course it sounds negative and we're all afraid also of the void and oblivion and emptiness, but it's not empty like a black hole or something. manifestation of emptiness. That's what that means, our manifestation of emptiness. That's what blends here before we get totally emptied <laughs> of interest. <coughs> 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 